Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. Today, myself, Trevor, and Carolyn. Hello. We have a special guest, Emma. Hi there. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So we're really excited to have you back on the show, Emma. And uh, listeners might have heard Emma join the show in early 2020. Um, Emma is a writer, activist and model and is really passionate about anti-speciesism and collective liberation. So Emma's the founding director of the not-for-profit Collective Fashion Justice, which is dedicated to the creation of a total ethics fashion system. And her first short film, Willow and Claude, has been selected for international film festivals and won multiple awards. So we're so excited to have you join us today and talk about Collective yeah. Liberation, um, your work with Collective Fashion Justice and your new book, How Veganism Can Save Us. Welcome, Emma. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to talking about all those things with you. And this isn't your first time on the show, is it, Emma? No. No, I spoke when Madison was on the show and we talked about similar kinds of themes, but, you know, probably there's more that's come and evolved since then, so... Yeah. yeah, yeah. so thanks for coming back. So can we just go back, I guess, to some of those themes, particularly around um, your work modelling and your work in the fashion industry and I guess how that informed your awareness of, of ethical issues and how that's led you to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so I think my first involvement with the fashion industry was not in an ethical sense at all. It was just that I was young, a teenager working as a model because I liked fashion in a creative sense and because it was a way for me to make money at the time, really. That was kind of it. Um, and what first started as, oh, I'd like to be more involved in this so that modelling can become more of a creative route and I can be more involved in the industry creatively, that was happening at the same time that I was considering the way that I view animals and then those two things began to conflict. So when I was living in Sweden, because half of my family lives there, I was being fed, you know, a lot of deer and moose and as someone who grew up in Australia, I thought that that was really strange. They're not really animals that we eat mm. and that mm. made me go, oh, okay, so maybe it's just that I shouldn't be eating any animals if I feel that way. So I had kind of dealt with that in the food world and then I was going to work and having, you know, cow skin and sheep's wool draped over me and that was how I was making money, by putting my face to that. 
So that obviously became an ethical problem for me. Mm. And at the same time then when I started thinking more about that, I started thinking more about how our clothes are made in general. So the people behind the clothes who are making them, how they're treated, all of those sorts of things. And it was through that that I decided I didn't want to model and be a part of the fashion industry unless I was a part of making the fashion industry better, more ethical, more sustainable. Mm. So first that looked like, you know, supporting brands that were doing the right thing and then it turned into actually wanting to make change for the brands that weren't. So now collective fashion justice, like you said, the not-for-profit exists to create a total ethics fashion system, which means one that values the life and well-being of all animals, so humans and non-humans, as well as the planet before profit, which shouldn't be a big ask, but definitely is considering where the industry is at now. Mm. A really bold ambition. I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I was actually going to say on that, like, because it sounds really great and sort of yeah. almost simplistic the way you say that, but I'm imagining like anyone being in that position, did it seem like super daunting or like how, what the roadmap to be like, you're starting as someone just in the industry, like not a no one, but not someone necessarily with power or doing, mm-hmm. doing any of the, the organizing or the decision-making and to sort of have, yeah. Like what was that? Was there a, was there a time you had to really like rethink everything or you thought you're not going to be able to do it or do you need help or... I think it's interesting because you're right at working as a model you don't have any power like despite people seeing it as a very kind of shiny job you are Mm. kind of bottom of the ladder in that industry in terms of your say on anything Mm. so an interesting part of that is that I think everyone knows that they're not going to be a model forever because it like you have such a kind of short shelf life in that industry because of things going on there so I knew that something else you know, was going to happen and I didn't want to be, like, my dream wasn't to be a model. So I think I was aware of that and using that to make relationships in the industry and it was great to have brands that, you know, had the same kind of values as me and that kind of helped lift me up to a place where I did have maybe a little bit more power to, you know, impact things and to say, yes, I will model for you but you need to do this. Yeah. So it became kind of a big, a bit of a bargaining chip, especially once you become known as someone that like represents ethical values. It's profitable now um, for brands to be appearing as sustainable and ethical, which mm-hmm. is why we see so much greenwashing and ethics washing. It's that selling mm-hmm. point. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if brands want you to help sell that, but they're not actually doing anything, at that point you do have the power because you can say, well, I'm not going to do that until, you know, we're seeing actual action happening mm. and changes being made. So I think that was an interesting kind of point to get to. Yeah. I imagine those are very um, fascinating conversations. <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> funny brands. thing to balance, like friendly mm. enough that you're going to keep on talking to me, but also like firm enough that I'm not just kind of accepting any microscopic level of change. Mm-hmm. And so was this, mm-hmm. this wasn't just one-offs. This was quite common that you would have to sort of take that stance and do that sort of bargaining. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't always super successful. Like I had a modeling agency just drop me because they were, thought I was too difficult and had too mm. many like requirements for a brand. Um, and for a while that meant then I was like working at a call center at the same time that I was trying to do this. Like it's mm-hmm. very difficult to say 
and I came from a position of privilege where I could say I'm going to like not accept money mm. for an ethical position. Not everyone can do that. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was kind of through that process that took time of working out what I'd say yes to and then eventually saying there's actually so little I can say yes to the more ethical requirements I have. So I need to work more in that like not-for-profit consulting mm -hmm. space to change the industry on a much bigger scale. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Willow Creative and, and the work that you've been doing there and, and helping other brands? Because I think that's um, really a fascinating point as well. So Willow Creative Co, it's a little bit less of a thing now, but mm -hmm. it's kind of what I first got into, which was having ethical and like ethically minded creatives, photographers, makeup artists, whatever, working with brands that have similar values, partly because, you know, you would see a vegan brand for shoes, for example, and then they would have the photo shoot and the makeup artist would come and they would have makeup that was not only not vegan, but tested on animals and things mm -hmm. like that, where the behind the scenes weren't actually aligned mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. So wanting to change that to be consistent and then also wanting to give brands that are, you know, so focused on changing the industry and being really a positive space in that way that maybe they haven't considered, like, the optics of their brand, which means that the huge brands that don't care about anything, that have a lot of money to spend on that, mm. are, you know, celebrated more because they're just visually more appealing and that's kind of how fashion works. So. Yeah. Willow Creative Co. was about kind of trying to even out that playing field a little bit. Um, and then it beca began being consulting agency because, like, we wouldn't work with brands unless they met certain requirements. Mm -hmm. So if brands wanted that, you know, there was one brand where the first campaign we produced for them was their first line of bags made from Pinyatex, the pineapple leaf alternative to leather. And previously they had only made leather goods. So they swapped all of their cowskin leather for the Pinyatex and then that was when they were able to work with us. So that was really great. Mm. Um, but now I don't do so much of the like campaign production side yeah. because I'm more interested in focusing on like brand level change and legislative level change around fashion. Yeah. yeah. I just want to ask on that with the sort of minimum standards or requirements mm. to deal with a business – were they all animal advocacy related or were some of them other like to do with other ethics of either labor ethics or? Yeah. So definitely across the board kind of aligned with what we now are calling total ethics. So now, for example, Collective Fashion Justice actually has a certification that will release a little bit down the way still. And it's called mm. like the base values certification because we don't want to say any brand is total ethics because I think that's like a constant. Mm -hmm. You can always improve your supply chain really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the base values are that the product or the brand has no animal materials, um, is sustainable based on the materials and a kind of table we have of kind of best currently available to absolutely should never be being used because they're just incredibly bad for the planet. So, for example, comparing... Miram, which is like a completely plastic-free, bio-based leather alternative to cowskin leather or like PVC from fossil mm -hmm. fuels. Mm. Um, and then the last one is that 
the people in tier one of the supply chain, which is where a garment, a bag is sewn together rather than the materials being made. Um, those people are being paid a living wage and being paid to have work in a safe space. So it's kind of, mm. that's kind of the bare minimum that a brand should be doing. And that's so far beyond what most brands are doing. So if you're supporting that, even though there are other things to consider, you're doing like so much better than the rest of the industry. So that's something to aim for before you're ready to kind of go further. Yeah. And so I guess maybe if listeners are aware, like I'm, I'm assuming people that are interested in fashion are probably aware, there are there are other organisations that sort of rank different um, fashion businesses or brands, but this seems less of a ranking and more of a, well, this is sort of a, a passable and a not pass. Whereas yeah, other you ones either have the it or A, B, C, D, E, mm. and they're not really saying don't buy anything that's below a certain level. Mm. But mm. you're sort of more trying to, rather than just ranking it, you're sort of saying actually, and this is our minimum, like what we think is what people should be achieving as a minimum. Yeah, and I think one of our goals at Collective Fashion Justice is to make total ethics fashion more accessible. And a lot of that is around price, but then... Part of that is also helping people to understand why clothes have to cost mm. what they do so that people mm-hmm. are paid to make them and all of that. But a lot of the kind of inaccessibility of that kind of fashion is just knowledge. Like the, so many people say to the organisation, I want to support this kind of fashion system, but I don't know how to. And when there's mm-hmm. so much kind of marketing, that makes sense. Mm. So we do want people to not have to kind of you know, not everyone has the time to do their own research or to Mm -hmm. really look into things. So if there's a seal of approval where they know, like, these things are assured, then I think that will be helpful. So that's, yeah, what that aims to do. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. I love your advocacy in the industry. It's really, really incredible. Can we sort of backtrack a little bit in terms of what sort of spurred on your activism? So so you do talk about... um, when you started modelling and I guess you're growing awareness about the way we commodify and use animals and the conflict um, that you had with that sort of ethically. But how did that sort of direct your activism? Because, again, for listeners, you know, you've been involved with Animal um, Liberation Victoria and other organisations. Sort of how did that sort of all, I guess, start for you? I think once you become more aware of one specific social justice issue it's kind of like then the doors open to care Mm. about everything else you know like if you've been able to somehow avoid thinking about any ethical issue because you've you know been comfortable once you learn about one you're like oh there's other things happening because they are all interconnected Mm. um so for me that first thing was animal rights and veganism and going to some protests I got involved with animal rights groups specifically and then it was through that and then learning about the animal industrial complex and how it impacts the planet that I started thinking about sustainability more Mm. um and then you know if you're I am a woman and I was then getting more you know thoughtful on gender-based issues and all of that kind of thing came out as bias so then like everything I think it just kind of comes together Mm. um and so now I see that all of my work has to kind of exist in this collective liberation framework because Mm. I think if you're working for one singular issue without acknowledging the way it intersects with different issues 
it's not going to be effective. It's not to mean that it's impossible for a single person to, you know, dismantle every specific issue, but we're not going to be able to dismantle oppression if we don't realise that, you know, oppression is a structure and that, you know, racism or speciesism or sexism are kind of specific um, ways of that manifesting mm. rather than totally different things. Mm. Mm. A lot of hand talking then that you can't see on the radio, <laughs> but it's quite intense. Just imagine and, and your lots favorite of heads politician. nodding in the studio as well. So you know that's all good, and that's so true because you know it's often been said that we don't live single issue lives. Yeah, and I think that interconnectedness between multiple forms of oppression is really really important for us to recognise. Thank you. Mm. I think we also should say we've got a copy of Emma's book, which mm. is really exciting to give away that we are going to give away to a listener who texts in on... We hope this phone number works. So the text number should be 0488 809 855. So if you're the first person that texts in, you will receive a copy of Emma's book, which is kindly signed, and we will post that out to you. And what should they text? Uh, what should the text say so I know what to look out for? They'd love a copy of Emma's book, perhaps. <laughs> I want a copy we'll get of the back book. In, and yeah. then we'll, we'll announce who that is. And if you could email us your details, we'll send the book to you. But let, let's see who texts in, shall okay. we? And we'll go to a song now, I think, and give you a chance to text in. Uh, the first song that you've chosen is The Kid. Um, did you want to say why you chose this one? Yes. Very new release from Phoebe Go. Phoebe lives in Melbourne and is a good friend of my brother's and I've met her a few times and really like her and her music's great. She used to be in Snackadactyl and had a two-person act as well. Oh, I've heard of that band. Yeah, yeah, so this is her second single out from being her, being Phoebe Go. So it's a good one. Fantastic. I feel weird in this dress Didn't you picture me with pinstriped legs Truth is, I think you met me at my best Under the table, now I'm scared to death Cause I take it to the heart And now I'm going under I'm not looking for the stars But they're looking for the dark
when I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Freedom of Species. Before the break, that was Phoebe Go with the kid. And today it's Trev with Carolyn, and we're joined with Emma. Yay. Thanks. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about ethics and the fashion industry and Emma's not-for-profit organisation, Collective Fashion Justice. Can we talk a little bit more about, you know, some of the campaigns um, that you're working on and one of the th- resources that you have, which I know is up on uh, the website, which we'll share with everybody um, in the podcast as well, but I picked up the print version of the Total uh, Ethics Fashion Primer, which is just incredible in the way you've laid out some really um, pivotal information around mm-hmm. environmental impact of various materials, overconsumption, which I think is a huge, huge issue mm. in our society, deforestation and associated impact of water pollution scarcity. And I think some of the topics that probably are a little um, less frequently discussed relate to human animals and things such as environmental racism and the psychological impact of the harm that can be caused in fashion supply chains where workers are commodified and exploited just as animals are. So... Can we sort of, I know that's a lot, can we just unpack (laughs) some of that stuff? Because I think it's really important to understand issues around, you know, the garment and say um, tannery workers Mm. and the kinds of things that that they're facing Mm. in their their daily lives. I think a good way to tackle unpacking all of this is to look at the supply chain behind a particular fashion product. So if we Mm -hmm. look at a pair of shoes, for example, made Mm -hmm. of leather, If we go back to the very start of that supply chain, that's where there are cows and those cows are being, you know, exploited, often mutilated and then ultimately slaughtered. So there are clear issues there. Mm. Um, And then in the farm level where that cow is being exploited, 
often there's going to be exploitation of people as well. Mm. So a lot, I think the third largest producer of cattle skins in the world is Brazil. And at the farm level there, we know that like 80% of Amazonia's deforestation is tied to cattle rearing and that 60% of forced labour in the kind of list of most known kind of industries and harms involved with that in Brazil, 60% of that comes from cattle ranches. Mm. So there's farm worker harm happening there. And even before that, there's often displacement of Indigenous people on Indigenous land yeah. that is being mm. cleared. So already at that level alone, there's so many issues. Mm. But then we get to the slaughterhouse and there are slaughterhouse workers who are more likely to experience something like perpetration-induced stress, trauma, kind of similar to PTSD, similar symptoms, but from causing harm rather than experiencing it. Mm. Um, and you know, those things kind of end up overlapping. And that's a huge part of our work is wanting people to acknowledge slaughterhouse workers as fashion workers. We so often mm-hmm. kind of just think of that as food system issues only. But if we're talking about, you know, who made my clothes, which is a huge fashion revolution campaign, those people have to be involved in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's something different from where tannery workers who, you know, often are working with carcinogenic chemicals. Mm. They're really harmed in that sense and there's often kind of forced labour or really Mm. unjustly paid labour. Same with garment workers. It's estimated that like Mm. 2% of all garment workers get paid a living wage, which means the rest of them are paid a poverty wage that doesn't cover, you know, their most basic needs. Mm. We can change things for garment workers and make people be paid a living wage, be paid to work in a safe space, but with slaughterhouse workers, you can't change the fundamental part of it. Like you can't mm-hmm. change that that job is to kill and that mm-hmm. there's just an inherent psychological damage that is going to yeah. come with doing something like that and inflicting that on another individual. So I think that's where it's interesting to look to it. Like in some places we can kind of restore and make something better, but in other parts of the supply chain, it can only work if we transform it completely. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's inherent to that activity, isn't it? That, yeah. that there's exploitation of, of people as well as, as animals. Yeah, you mentioned um, garment workers and the, you know, I guess the conditions they really do work in are akin to it's modern day slavery, isn't it? There is a lot of um, uh, forced labour, labor. there's a lot of child labour. As you mentioned, there are mm. very, very few um, workers who are actually receiving a living wage. There's also disproportionately is impacting, you know, women of colour mm. and people who are in vulnerable circumstances with few other employment options. Um, I think you also touch on issues which, you know, I think are really, really important for us to recognise around the um, rate of sexual assault and harassment in industries like this for women women particularly um, and young people who are not in a position of power, don't have, um, you know, support often of a union or anything, um, you know, to actually... Or a union at all. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Correct. So do you have a view on how we can actually engage people around this issue particularly of garment workers, that this is a feminist issue Mm. and that all of us who make a choice to consume fashion 
really need to be across those issues if we if we want to make an ethical choice. Mm. I think it's um, you know, there's been a lot of unpacking in the last few years, more mainstreamly. That's not really a word, but whatever. Um, of feminism needing to be more than you know, caring for white women in your mm-hmm. community that is fairly wealthy, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I think it was Rachel Cargill who talked about like white feminism being white supremacy in heels, like, and the need for mm. feminism to look f- out for all women. Um, and I think. There's a real problem with not being able to, you know, include feminist theory with when we're talking about women that we can't see or that we'll Mm -hmm. never know. Like just because we can't see the women who are making our clothes doesn't mean they're not owed, you know, all the same kind of rights and safeties that the women in our specific community are owed. Um, And totally, I think clothing and fashion is a deeply kind of feminist issue because not only is it an industry that's largely made up of women, but it's largely Mm. led by men and they're the Mm. people making the decisions that are, you know, allowing for this kind of exploitation to continue. So I think when we're talking about the Me Too movement and all of these things, we need to kind of keep the same energy for things we can control and we can control what we buy or what we don't Mm. buy and what that funds and supports. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I wanted to pick up on, I guess, on a similar vein, um, some points around fast fashion. So obviously that's something that you advocate strongly against. And I think people feel they know what fast fashion is. Mm. And I think that, you know, back in sort of 2014, there was a real touch point around fast fashion and the impact of that with the tragedy that happened in Bangladesh with the collapse of the um, Rana Plaza sort of towers. Um, and that killed 1,100 garment workers and injured another 2,500 workers who were operating in unsafe spaces. Um, I, I only read recently that the Savar building at Rana Plaza was actually um, deemed unfit for purpose because it was actually built on a drained lake. Mm. And Whoa, the workers had been complaining that they could hear like cracking, cracking. in the walls yeah. but yeah. they were told to keep working. keep working so they completely were aware of how dangerous it was so they either had to go home and essentially be fired and then have no way to support their family or keep working in that condition mm. yeah i know it's truly something that's so difficult to to sort of comprehend and you know I, it, it's just devastating that we take a tragedy like that to actually um you know bring this sort of issue into I guess sort of mainstream media and sort of discussion so I remember that really distinctly as being a real um touch point in terms of consideration of the workers behind some of the brands but do you think after this time has much really changed because I feel from an outsider's perspective that it hasn't that fast fashion is still very, very much with us. Um, And it's not, you know, even a collection of clothes is dropping for each season. It's that sort of every week, Mm. new, new, new. I think the positive change that has come 
has been dwarfed by the kind of continued worsening, which sounds grim, but is kind of the case. Um, Mm. And that positive progress is still happening. The Fashion Revolution just released their latest report on industry transparency, and Mm. transparency is like the first step. You can be transparent about doing bad things, so that's Mm. not all that you do. But there is progress being made, which I think is worth celebrating. But I also think that people are kind of recognizing fast fashion only in its ultimate fast fast form like you know brands like H&M or even faster brands that are purely online e-tail mm. kind of thing that's recognized as fast fashion but it's often forgotten that the brands that you see on the street brands that you like on Instagram that appear good that say designed in Australia which kind of implies made in Australia when it's not mm. um all of these brands are just as complicit much of the time. Luxury brands, you know, paying more doesn't necessarily mean paying people making the clothes more. And I think we have to assume that, you know, if a brand isn't coming forward and saying, here's everything you need to know about our supply chain, here's what we can promise you about the way that we treat people and animals and the planet, if brands aren't telling you that, it's for a reason and they don't want you to know about it. I don't think Mm. we should ever assume a brand that appears good just definitely is. And but even if they, yeah. like, for benefit of the doubt, even if they just don't know, if they don't know, it's still likely to be these unethical sourcing and, mm. and um, like, supply chains because they're the cheapest and they're the most predominant. So unless they're actually doing the work mm. to source the better supply chains and to actually make sure that, like, policies that are, you know, outside of the norm, unfortunately, actually get put in place and they're probably not going to be doing the right thing like it's, it's hard to accidentally do the right thing it's, i guess is what i'm saying so <laughs> even, even, yeah. if they're, <laughs> even if they're not purposefully like hiding it and they're just honestly you know mm. they don't know they're just ignorant to it they're still going to be doing the wrong thing in an ignorant way yeah. yeah and i think that's something too we need to get to a point now where it's like you can't be a brand profiting from people buying clothes if you're not willing to make sure you know everything you can about your supply chain Mm -hmm. because that's when you can actually make sure that it's as best as it can be because these issues are sort of it's not just for fashion like i know i've looked into similar things with say cocoa and chocolate production Mm -hmm. or other things and it's um i know even like and and sometimes with fashion like when i've tried to look into um you know who are the more ethical producers of materials if they need to be for advocacy reasons like Mm. if we're producing shirts for Mm. some event or something um yeah it's really hard to find ones that have actually done the work to even be transparent Mm. about every level they'll Mm. do some and they'll be transparent about what looks good for them and then the ones that don't or that's in the too hard basket they'll just say we buy at market price or we just buy on the market it's just this vague term you don't know where the hell it is you don't know Mm. where what farm it's sourced from or whatever. And there's a lot of terms like that that I think people use to make people feel comfortable that we can really easily assume are good. You know, so often if you ask a brand, are you paying the workers a living wage? You'll get a response saying, we pay all of our workers a fair wage. And it's like, that mm. sounds good for a moment, but <laughs> you didn't actually answer the question. And yeah. a fair wage has like no legal definition, whereas mm-hmm. a living wage is a clear thing. Um, yeah. And they're the same with that. Like if people ask 
if there are animal materials, often you get a response back where it's like, yes, but it's from sheep at this farm that is very happy. And it, then it's sort of just glazing over all of these issues of like, are they being tailed off? Are they being mules? They're ultimately being slaughtered. They're going into live export. They're like all of these things. And they just kind of have these practiced sentences back that they often, like you said, believe themselves. Mm. But we have to kind of get beyond just accepting sentences and being like, okay, great, rather than questioning yeah. what's under what is being said. Yeah. Absolutely. And working out what it means. Yeah. Because mm. like, mm. they've been carefully constructed to try and deflect from some of these issues, deflect the heat off. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. I wanted to ask about some of the work that Collective Fashion Justice is doing in raising awareness of how animals have been are used in the fashion industry. And obviously we've just we've touched on some of that. I'm just really mindful of our time. So, <laughs> so what could could you talk to us, us through some of those things? Like I did watch your fantastic Willow and Claude little film. I know there's um campaigns around the use of crocodile skins. Could you tell us a little bit more about some yes. of that work? Mm. So there are a lot of campaigns and collaborative clamp- campaigns that we work on. Um and we aim to kind of have a variety that look and engage with like citizens, citizen consumers, and then with brands themselves and then kind of at a policy level. So we have Mm. been working towards trying to get a fur ban in the state of Victoria with an Animal Justice Party MP. We um, have worked with Kindness Project and other organisations to highlight how crocodiles in Australia are treated for luxury fashion. At the moment, more native saltwater crocodiles live in cages owned by luxury fashion houses and for fashion profits than live in their natural habitat, which is an absurd Mm. thing to know. Um, And then, you know, we also have reports at the moment. We're working on a leather report that looks at the harms of that supply chain for people, for the planet, for animals, and then also what a just transition looks like, what alternative materials are, what an agricultural transition looks like, all of mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Mm. Um, we also work, you know, with different platforms like Good On You is a directory that gives ratings to brands um, okay. and they have material guides and all these things and previously some of their material guides, you know, their one for wool basically said if there's mulesing involved, it's bad, but otherwise, like, that's kind of the only ethical issue involved. Uh-huh. And so we obviously mm. updated that because there's so much more to that issue. Um, and we have a lot about that on our website. And they were open to that, the people at Good Yeah, on you? so we've now worked with Good On You and written a new one for Down Feather and updated mm-hmm. their leather and their wool and their cashmere material guides, which is really great. Um, I'm going to work on one for kangaroo leather soon because that's another Mm. one that's so, you know, people basically market kangaroo leather as, you know, a product that is a byproduct of commercial and government killing of a pest, which is absurd because Mm. it's an indigenous animal that's been here for millions of years that is facing local extinction in some areas and that is really it's just not the case at all um and there's a lot of profit pushing that kind of myth that it's something else Mm. so there's a lot of different campaigns we work on but they're some of them fantastic well we do want to encourage people to text in because we're going to talk 
shortly about Emma's amazing book, How Veganism yeah. Can Save Us. So the text number is 0488 809855. Please text in if you would like to receive a copy of Emma's book. And I yes. think we are going to a song. We'll go to a song. Emma, your next one is Grew Inside the Water. Another good song. I can <laughs> say that as the person who picked it. Um, it's by Mimi Gilbert. She's a beautiful songwriter. Um, she, All of her songs are amazing. You should listen to them all. And she's very lovely. Um, and my brother was also, just shout out to my brother, yeah. involved in helping mix these songs. This oh, really? Particularly, yeah. Um, whole album's great. You should listen to it if you like this song.
Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm on 3CR 855 AM Homeless in Hotels a 3CR supporter your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Freedom of Species, bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves with Trev and Caroline, and we are talking with Emma today. And we just heard Grew Inside the Water by Mimi Gilbert. Love that. Yeah, That's great awesome. Song. Yeah. So we are going to talk about Emma's new book, which is super exciting. Congratulations on that. I love it. Yeah. Could you give us a bit of background to um, how the book came about? And I know you've done a lot of writing over, you know, a number of years, but it's a real coup to have a book published. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, So How Veganism Can Save Us is actually a part of the Survive the Modern World series from Mm -hmm. Heidi Grant. And it's supposed to be a little book that is, you know, accessible and not too overwhelming while looking at a problem that is really complicated and nuanced. So it's, you know, broken up with different kind of explainers of particularly difficult themes. There's kind of action points and it's everything's broken down to be really like this is the most important things for you to know about veganism and when I'm saying you know how veganism can save us I said at the book launch what I really mean is how a consistent dedication to collective liberation can save us and that veganism is a really critical aspect of that Mm. Um, so the book is sort of for people who are interested in social justice or some part of social justice and they haven't necessarily considered how their relationship with other animals, and I say other animals because, you know, humans are animals too, Mm. how that feeds in to broader social justice issues, whether it's around the environment or 
other people, ourselves, all of that kind of thing, as well as, of course, non-humans who are really at the core of their own exploitation, of course, and the system built on that. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. I love the three discrete um, sections because, you know, if we are going to save ourselves, we have to save the planet and we have to save animals. So it just seems so absolutely fundamental and obvious to me anyway. (laughs) But I do love the little topic explainers and and sort of keynotes and um, ideas for action and, you know, even things that I'm not sure if people reflect on very often in terms of using individualistic language. Mm. How many times do we hear people talk about animals as it? Mm. And there's such a um, base way to other another animal, right? Yeah, and that's something that I think that's one of the action points in the book is looking at that language because Mm. even if we haven't yet changed any of our actions, changing our language is such a valuable way that we can start changing the way that we think because Mm. if we continue to refer to other animals as it by saying like even in a nice way if we're saying look at that dog, it's so cute, we're sort of recognizing the sweetness of that individual but then at the same time turning them into an object Um, and it's even more true when it comes to animals that we wear or that we eat Um, the first time that I thought of it I was at a slaughterhouse vigil and I went up to the Melbourne chicken save organizer at the time Lizzie and I said oh this chicken the poor thing I said its leg is looks really broken and its feathers are all really bloodied and so you know even then I was already vegan I was coming from this place of care but I was still referring to this animal as an object and Mm. as this kind of commodity that the system that we live in has made us view them as because we talk about chicken mostly in the world as like a carcass on a plate Mm -hmm. um and so she at the time just said them and I was like what do you mean and she was like if we're talking about an animal we don't say it we say them and, you know, we recognise them as other individuals. And I think that's a really kind of first thing that we can all do is to change our language in that way. Absolutely. And it sounds so fundamental, but it's so key to recognising animal sentience. Mm. And, um, yeah, a great, great way to start. Can I ask language. just a quick thing? Like, how did you feel immediately after sort of being corrected in that sort of way and that like did you get a bit defensive at all or did you, did your mind sort of go through a bit of a journey of oh hang on that actually does make sense but it took mm. a while to get there or I think I was really I was taken aback but kind of not because I was offended the way it was said to me also was so kind of gentle um, but I think I was more shocked that I was caring about animals to the point that I was here at this slaughterhouse vigil and it was still something that I had never even thought of Mm -hmm. and it just shows you know how ingrained that kind of thing is within us that you can really feel for animals and care for them and still use language that perpetuates their kind of commodification that was something that really kind of took me aback and meant I went home and thought more about other language that I use which was Mm. a really good thing to be able to dwell on. Mm. Mm. Yeah, what a fantastic reflection. Oh, I have some news, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. Susan Buckland, congratulations. You will have a copy of Emma's new book, How Veganism Can Save Us. It's signed as well. Hooray. And you were the first person to text through. So we will 
contact you and get your details. Well, it might be great if you could send us an email at freedomofspecies at gmail.com. Um, okay. And then we can get your address so we can post it to you. Sounds good. Well done. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. <laughs> can I ask about, um, you know, the feedback that you've had so far on the book? The launch was only last week, so yes. I haven't got to have heaps of feedback yet. Hopefully I will hear people say they like it more and more. Um, but the people that have read it so far and that read it, you know, before publication as well, it was really nice to have readers both who were already vegan and who weren't yet um, to kind of see those different, you know, kinds of people looking at it. And it has been really nice and, you know, that it is a way to look at something complicated without being overwhelmed and just yeah. being like, I want to put this book down because I'm, yeah. the world is terrible and I can't read about it anymore. It's supposed to be, like it is grim sometimes because the state of the world, you know, mm. how it can be. Um, but there are light parts to it and it's it's not all awful. No, not at all. I think it's so beautifully written and the depth of your research is also really fantastic. I love that you've got the QR code with all of your references, which is which mm. is really wonderful. But for me, I think the the overarching positive and, and why I'd really recommend people um, dive into the book irrespective of how long they've been vegan um, or, you know, their knowledge about um, animal rights and, and various issues around the way we commodify um, and use animals is because it's so accessible and I think this is the perfect book to start conversations with other people. Yay. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so um, we're going to wrap up soon. Emma, it was really lovely having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great. I, I learned a lot as well. Mm, I'm so sorry. We didn't delve into the other 3,000 <laughs> things I wanted to talk to you about though. So we'll definitely That's what have the to website and the book is for too. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely have to get you to come back if, you, if you'd like to because I'd love to talk more about greenwashing in the industry and yes. also more about the book. Thank you. Yeah. I highly recommend people look it up, um, How Veganism Can Save Us, and we will add a link um, in the podcast. Uh, and I would highly recommend as always – that you ask your public library to get copies because libraries do such mm. amazing um, social good and are fantastic resources for many. And I can just see how striking the cover is. If people see that in the new releases. It's going to um, it's going to really appeal to a lot of people and generate lots of important conversations that we need. But thanks so much for being here, Mark. Thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Um, Freedom of Species will be back next week at 1 p.m. as always on Sunday. And up next is Rotations. They're going to be playing some songs for you this Sunday afternoon. And just to let people know, if you did um, donate or pledge to donate for our Radiothon, um, you can still put that through. Um, just go to the website um, for 3CR. I don't have that on me right now, but it's 3cr.org or something like that. I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find it. Um, but thank you to everyone who has put into our fundraiser for the Radiothon. That was really great. And, um, yeah. What's the song we're going to go out with? This last song is Back Three School. Yes. And who's the artist? Porsches. Not someone I know this time, but who I love. And this whole album is, it's a great album. So another Fantastic. recommendation. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs>
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.